Hi, you're listening to Under the Radar. Between the main episodes where we feature our big band or artist interviews is this space, where I shed some light about the making of the current episode and read a review or an email we might have received from you. We also invite a listener who has written us a review to come on the show and discuss what about the episode or artists or songs resonated with them. So if you're interested in being featured, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts. Or you can email me at celine.teoblocky at undertheradarmag.com. If you didn't catch it, that's in our show notes. So today we're talking about this month's episode featuring James Yorkston and the Secondhand Orchestra. James, with his Scottish accent, was warm, funny and charming, and I'm pretty sure that comes across in the episode. The tape I want to play is something that he had said to me early on about Taysap Wafaifa, which is a little live show that takes place in his local area. James is a little taken aback that I've seen this little wee thing that he's made in his local forest uh, all the way here in America. Um, it gives you a little insight into the kind of artist James is, that his world, this little fishing village near a forest in Fife is precious and he's wary of encroaching eyes. It's an interesting struggle I think that artists have always had to write about these really, really private things and then put these songs out there where everyone then has access to. I think but with social media, the immediacy and total access that people can have is really quite frightening. So it's understandable that artists are wary. Anyway, here's James. To Subway Pfeiffer, the... A long time ago here in the East Nook, there was, a, there was a group of people called the Fence Collective. And some of them you may have heard of because uh, uh, Katie Tunsell was involved and the Beta Band were involved and King Carrizo were involved. I guess that they were the three biggest names. So, you know, we're not talking Elton John and Sting, you know, but it was uh, it was people. And then there was all sorts of... Uh, other bands that people don't really know, and some incredibly creative young musicians as well. But it kind of went by the wayside, and there was a gap in the market. So I asked Creative Scotland, who's a government foundation here, if they could give me some money to put towards running these shows, and they said yes. So I think we run maybe 30 or 40 of them, and the idea was everyone would be different. So we'd have a lot of traditional folk music, because that's what I'm interested in. But we'd also have poetry and we'd have experimental musicians to see whoever was around who I could put together a nice bill. I guess the highlight names would be for people like me. There'd be Linton Kwesi Johnson, uh, the great dub or reggae poet, Martin Carthy or um, uh, Dick Gochen played. And then we've had people like Kareen Polwart and Sheena Wellington and Laura Cannell. So there's been a real mix of people and some great poets as well. But then when lockdown came along, I thought, well, why don't I try and do these online? And the general reaction I got from the artists and the poets was just, thank you for asking. Because we started at the beginning of the pandemic and it was just, we all lost our gigs, as you know, obviously, everyone knows this now. To have somebody coming along and offering money 
to play a gig, even though it was an online gig. I think they really appreciated it at the time. So it was a fun thing to do. It feels a bit weird talking to you over in L.A. about it because it was filmed in one of the local forests near my house, you know, me and my wee boy just walking around, or my wee girls in one of them. And uh, so it feels a bit daft, a bit odd that people can watch it all over. But, you know, it's just supposed to be a fun thing. The internet never forgets, but James, if you hear the actual episode, says in the end that he's going to have to forget all the press and all the expectations that people might have of his work when he goes on and writes the next record. It's also this new normal of the pandemic where we have had incredible access to artists going straight into their homes. Um, I've recorded all the interviews now for the rest of the season and towards the end, the fatigue of being online and doing Zooms where everyone in my home, including our dog, has to learn to keep quiet. It, you know, it does take its toll. Um, so I think as things begin to open up further, there will definitely be some recalibration of what's normal again. And it'll be interesting to see the kinds of work that emerges from all these different artists. Okay, so I'm always inviting listeners of the show to write us Apple Podcast reviews, but if you are on Podchaser, feel free to write a review there too. I will read it out if it's from there as well, because uh, I'm aware that not everyone is an Apple user. Anyway, this week we have this review. So the title reads, Beautiful. I'm blown away by the depth and care taken in creating this podcast. The interviews feel so intimate and really bring you into the life and mind of the artist. As a musician, I feel so inspired after listening to the James Yorkston interview. I'm just welling with tears of feeling connected to the power that music can have in our lives. Celine is such a wonderful interviewer and host. She gently and lovingly gets to the heart of things. So that was really heartfelt, which is how I make the podcast. So thank you. And that review was by Lily Sloan. Now the day will come when I will get a bad review and whoever writes that, I will be happy to have you on the show too. For now, I thought this is going to be so interesting to have a guest who is also a therapist, given the theme of mental health that was a big part of this James Yorkston episode. I am Lily Sloan, and I live in San Francisco. I am a licensed psychotherapist, and I'm also a musician and composer and audio producer. I started out in the audio world making my own podcast called A Therapist Walks Into a Bar. That was a narrative style, heavily produced, big production that I was doing by myself for three years. Now I'm I'm doing a lot of music and sound design on other podcasts and uh, making my own music outside of my very small part-time therapy practice. You're an artist and a psychotherapist. Yeah. So you kind of have an acute understanding of how mental health affects people across the board, right? Yeah. And also what it means to make music um, and put this very precious thing out there for 
the void to listen or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I feel that way about podcasts sometimes. Yeah. Yep. Um, but so what's your thoughts on the relationship between sort of art and depression or mental health? Yeah, um, something that I had noticed when I was listening to the interview with James Yorkston was um, he mentioned talking to his doctor and his doctor saying, yeah, you have depression. Like, this is actually not like a crazy thing. This is crazy is probably the wrong word. But um, this is, you know, this is this is normal. A lot of people have depression. A lot of artists have depression. And so it's not a surprise you're struggling with this. And I thought that was so... I'm glad that his doctor kind of normalized it, but I also think there's a big conversation that goes on about artists and mental illness or mental health. There, there's a lot of interesting kind of myths and stereotypes around it where where there's sort of this expectation that to be a really good artist, you have to be pretty messed up and like broken, just as there's sort of too much of an expectation in our culture that we have to fix and heal every single problem that we have. And so, you know, you've kind of got both sides of the spectrum. And I've been kind of thinking a lot about what I even think depression is and why. And I don't think it's one thing. Mm. We don't fully know, you know, the, this idea that it's a chemical imbalance or that, you know, it's this or it's genetic. Like, we don't fully know at this point. Some people benefit from medication. Some people benefit from yoga, like James was saying, you know, mm. some people, it's talk therapy. Sometimes it's a combination. But I've been really getting more out of thinking of it as not a bad thing that needs to be fixed. It might be something that I need extra support around when it happens because I definitely suffer from depression myself, but I see it more as a natural part of being a sensitive human being and sometimes a reaction to being in a world that doesn't really support sensitivity and space for going through different ups and downs. Mm. But I think art inherently is a process that has a lot of peaks and valleys because it takes so much energy to create. And there's the energy in the creation itself and then the energy in putting it out into the world and you're trying to communicate something and you're trying to connect with other people in in a way. It's Mm -hmm. And it can be so lonely. And then you get to the part where you finally get to share it and that can be even more lonely because... Either you get no response or or <laughs> or people get have their own interpretation of what you've made. They have their own relationship to it. It doesn't even have to do with you anymore. Mm-hmm. I was having all kinds of interpretations and relationships to to James Yorkston's music that were like very personal to me. And I don't know that he'd want to hear those interpretations. <laughs> Um, you also mentioned that in an episode when James says, I write a song, but then what's at the end of that for me? And that line, even when I was doing the interview, jumped out for me. I was like, whoa. I mean, I was kind of curious to know more. I think if if we were in a therapy session, you know, I might be like, oh, wait, hold on. Uh, tell me what that means. Um It definitely evoked a lot for me because, like I was saying before, that the energy and vulnerability that goes into sharing something. For me, when I'm making something, there's a part of me that's like, ah, yes, this is going to really communicate this thing that's deep inside of me and finally the world will know. Um, (laughs) That's a lot of pressure. 
But I do feel like something I've been grappling with so much in the last couple of years because a lot of insecurity and fear comes up for me once I've shared my stuff and disappointment and depression is the idea, like I said before, like once you've created something and you share it, it's no longer yours. It Like there's a way where you've given it to the world and, you know, whoever comes across it and you don't own it anymore. And that's scary. And he was saying that, I think, in the context, too, of this concern and issue of feeling like the band he was working with was going to then take it and and change it so much, right? And that's really interesting because this latest album he did with the Secondhand Orchestra, who he'd never met before, and this like amazing Swedish conglomeration of musicians. And he did something really... I think like really kind of courageous and vulnerable to make that album and take on that project in that way. You know, who knows like if there were moments that were tough, but it sounds like they were the perfect people to like gift his songs to. Like they they really held and supported it in a way that was so beautiful. When I hear their voices come in and sing with him, like the flute coming in and the little bit of violin coming in, it's just all of it to me just brought up all these feelings of like, peace and acceptance and holding like that's what I want from sharing my art whether it's collaborating or just having an audience I think it's rare personally and it's so magical when it happens and it takes so much courage to to open yourself up to that opportunity yeah I think you're exactly right there where for him it was a sense of because they were so young when they were in this band together, yeah. um, you know, even if he'd written a song while he was going through being in a state of depression, he didn't think he could do anything with the song because he would take it to the band and they would just wreck it yeah. for him. And it's so nice that you've pointed this kind of full circle moment out for him that, of course, like, you know, I didn't actually make that connection. But that's like so sweet that you saw that as well. And I think also that opportunity to play with strangers. I think there was one person, because I followed up with him again after that in a couple of emails, and he said there was one person in the band that he'd met before he had bought an instrument from her Mm. once before, and she'd handed the instrument, so he'd met him. And then the actual co-producer who co-produced it with him was somebody that he knew, and he just said, you know, I'll be in charge of finding a studio Mm. and and put this band together. But it was rotating because they were, I think he recorded over two different sessions or two different trips. The first one happened because at the end of a live show, the producer had said to him, hey, you know, you guys, there's some magic going on. Why don't I get a studio for us tomorrow and let's just try this. Right, and he said he (laughs) showed up and it was a different group of musicians than the one from the live show, which is so, I mean, just the amount of trust that had to exist in that process. You know, maybe maybe he trusted that producer a lot, you know, something, and or maybe just that live show experience felt so good that that was enough for him to be like, okay, let's try this out. Well, he said there was no pressure because nobody knew what he was doing. Domino didn't actually know that he was doing this. But I think it's also in the spirit of what he's 
done throughout he pushes himself to work with others and the things that he did with the fence collective mm-hmm. um I, I don't know how many um, musicians just do things yeah. like that but he obviously has it in his dna over the years so he's like okay let's just try this you know and i know that you too you're more attuned to working in collaborations. In 2013, I put out an album with a friend who I'd known since I was a teenager. And that was a huge feat. And I learned so much from it. It's kind of hard for me to listen (laughs) to it now. (laughs) But um, last year, I had the most delightful collaboration with my friend Martin Auswick, who is also in podcast land as a producer and a composer. And he makes um, the podcast Song by Song, which is uh, going through every single Tom Waits song ever. And it's pretty amazing. Mm. There's something that started in Berkeley um, that's been going on for decades called Song Fight. But I had just found out about it in 2019. There's this amazing community of people on these message boards online who are all over And every week there's a new prompt, like a new set of constraints. Now go make a song with this theme or incorporate this instrument if you can. And I wanted to do it. And I let Martin know because I thought, oh, he'd be into that. We talk about art and constraints all the time. And he said, do you want to do it together? So we made a song and then we made another song and then we made another song. And then we're like, should we just make an album? (laughs) (laughs) And so last summer, we finally released I Told You How Important You Would Be. He makes music under the name Pale Bird. I was bringing all my dark sadness and (laughs) he was bringing this kind of playful. (laughs) I'm playful too, but it was like the, the way that our our stuff interacted with each other was really interesting and worked really well. And at times, we were really challenged by each other and you know, what what our instincts were. And it was really an amazing experience to go through that. And we recorded the whole thing remotely. Because of course, Martin is in the UK. Yeah, they travel a lot, he and his wife. He was in LA, and they were about to come to San Francisco so we could finish the album. They got wind that "Hmm, things might lock down soon. So they went back to the UK just to be safe. And we finished it remotely. On your um, album that you have with Martin, there's one song where he actually talks about coming to see you or like wanting to come to see you. What was that about? Yeah. So we would start with the prompt that Song Fight gave us. And then some of the songs moved away from that once we weren't working within those constraints anymore. But the original prompt for that was like right town, wrong time or something. Mm. I'm not even getting it right, but he thought about the Terminator. Yeah. <laughs> and what if he had to time travel to come warn me about the war with the machines, but got the wrong time. He ended up somewhere in the 50s and found a different Lily Sloan. It seems so silly at first. And then, of course, I bring my all my personal issues about relationships to it. It ended up, for me, evoking really deep feelings of abandonment and missed Mm. connection and and being in a world that's falling apart. Mm. It ended up being one of my favorite songs on the album and being so heavy and emotional for me. And I love that our collaboration caused things like that to happen. It's been a hard one I 
now, so what now? Never felt the weight of feeling like the future's mine to fix. So what now? So what now? I'm the messenger. I think all art has the capacity to do this, but music has been the most impactful for me personally in terms of reaching into those places. And yeah, it might just be a line and it might not be what the musician who wrote it was singing about, but those words remind me of something for myself. And I, you know, I was listening to, you know, um, Wide Wide River um, yesterday walking and I was kind of bummed out that I didn't wear sunglasses because <laughs> I I didn't even realize it was Father's Day and there was especially in the song Struggle I was just like I felt you know I I felt this like father singing to a child saying, I'm not perfect and life is hard and I'm, and I love you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and it was so, so sweet and and sad and, and beautiful. And I felt really soothed by that because I don't have a good relationship with my dad. And so it was, and he has awful depression and there was a lot, you know, from that growing up. And to hear James Yorkston also talk about the work he's doing on himself to to be with and work through that and show up for his family and do his art, it's just, it's really encouraging too that, you know, especially the way that toxic masculinity can really get in the way of men being able to even recognize that they're dealing with depression or um, feelings at all. <laughs> I picked those two songs. Um, um, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> I cry very easily. <laughs> yeah, I'm a bit like that. Mm. <laughs> um, the, 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 so the two songs I picked, like Struggle, um, and I think There Is No Upside is the song that was mm -hmm. kind of the lead single. And I initially... But before I wrote the script, I, that was the song that I picked as the start. And then as I was writing the script and after I'd done the interview, I was just like, uh, this is a different story that mm -hmm. needs to be told. And he doesn't talk about like depression in, in other interviews that he does oh, in a big way. Yeah. And also that goes back to his point in the end there where he says, you know, the music is a private thing, mm. which I've heard other musicians say as well. You know, it's it's sort of like you write there, nobody questions you what that song is about. Even sometimes in a band, no one will say, oh, what is that song really about? It's like yeah. they're just in service of the song. So let's play the music and figure right. everything out. And, and sometimes 
it's only at this stage where people sit down and do press for it, where they really have to start thinking yeah. about what it means and why they wrote them. But for struggle, I think that line where he says something like, I'm here for you. Yes. And as you grow, you may see that sometimes I struggle. And I was like, well, this is what the song is about. You yeah. know? And, and But also that struggle of just pursuing this career in music which can sometimes be quite a thankless task, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I do really think that um, there's an aspect of it that whether you want it to be or not will always be private. So much of my relationship to music is connected to my relationship with my dad because he was the musician in the family. He was writing all these songs my whole childhood and playing songs and singing to us. And so it's very fraught for me. Because there was also, you know, a lot of instability in my home. And so it it's kind of hard in a way that this has become my primary mode of expression. I want it to just be pure joy. And it's actually, it's a big struggle. And yet it feels like the thing that I have so much access to. And it is a gift. And it is something that I'm glad I grew up around so it's it's yeah it's really complicated but something about being able to hear like maybe I can get some of that fathering experience through other musicians (laughs) I feel like I do I get it from Tom York I never thought of it as like a dad thing but I think now that I think about it it feels more like that I don't think he's quite old enough to be my dad (laughs) neither is Tom (laughs) is is James Yorkston um but yeah, yeah I think you know, sometimes you need that distance. And music creates enough distance from these really intense experiences to be able to dive in. I could see something shimmering in your mind. Thought that look of reverie was the same as mine. But I can't make it through to the other side to confirm the truth of my childish lies Thank you Lily for coming on the show You can follow Lily on Twitter Her handle is at Lily Rose Sloan. I've also added her Bandcamp details as well as links to her podcast A Therapist Walks Into a Bar I recommend listening to an episode or two to get a feel for the show and also Martin Ostwick's Song by Song podcast. There's a link to it in the show notes too. It's really great if you're a fan of Tom Waits, but I think even better if you only know him from his status as a cult hero and would like to experience his music through the eyes of a super fan. That's the best way in, I reckon. I hope you've enjoyed this Bite Size Under the Radar episode. Please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, apps like Overcast and Podchaser, wherever you get your podcasts, really, so you don't miss next month's episode. We also have a bonus episode coming up very soon with London Grammar, where we might revisit this theme of toxic masculinity. Email me at celine.teoblocky at undertheradarmag.com. I'm going to let Lily's song, Narrow Band, 
from her recent solo album *We Find Our Demons*. Take us out. Till next time. Especially.